And God's good providence, he had Mother's Day fall right after the women's retreat, so we are all far more thankful for you this week as we were getting the kids dressed. Um, Jonathan last week, as his mommy was gone, he said, where did she go? I said, to the women's retreat. And he said, what is that? I said, well, there's a lot of the women from the church, they all go up together to the mountains to a place and they retreat and worship and study God's word and they're together. And he said, that is not responsible at all. (laughs) And I said, why, buddy? Like, why is that not responsible? He said, well, who's going to protect them if it's only the ladies that are up there together? We go through a series of questions like, if there was a bad man that came into the house, what would you do? You know, and I'll tell him, like, well, I put you guys probably all, like, in a safe place in a room, and then I would protect you. Well, what if he was stronger than you? You don't need to worry about that, Jonathan. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean... We would like to be able to protect. Um, I think of just, not this last trip to Yosemite, but um, one of our last ones. Tasha asked me, do you think there's any bears out here? As we're pulling up to the campsite. I said, yeah, you don't need to worry about that. We're fine. It's Yosemite. There's so many people here. So we get out of the car and within 10 seconds this bear at about like 40 miles an hour comes blazing by my little wife. She's on one side of the car. I'm on the other side of the car. And it came within five feet of her. It felt like five inches, but you could just see it just blazing. And followed by the screaming of a lady going, get out of here, bear, just sprinting, (laughs) sprinting after the bear. Get out of here, bear. And... And I watched the bear go up this tree faster than I could sprint. I mean, this, I didn't know bear, that was like my go-to plan. If a bear comes, climb a tree, you know? I mean, you're the safest place you could be. And no, just curl up in a ball and pray because (laughs) that thing, it just, my wife watched it. I mean, we watched it together. It got up to the top of this tree within just a couple of seconds. And Tasha looks at me and just says, so we don't have to worry about it at all, huh? (laughs) We we like to think that we're in control, that we're protected, that we're fine based upon our own ability, but we're not, are we? Um, There's times like that that we feel incredibly vulnerable. And it's times like that 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 we need to have... um, just a very high view of God and his sovereignty. We began a few weeks ago and took the last couple of weeks off for the all-church meeting and with the women's retreat. But we, a few weeks ago, we began our study in the book of Romans in chapter 8, 28, as we're going through the book of Romans, a verse that's familiar to most everybody here. But let's read it together, and we'll continue in our study in this particular verse this morning. And we know, 
we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know a view of God that brings us to a place of we know that all things work together for good. Although we've read that verse many times, certainly there's times in our lives where we think, how do we know? How do we know? And the last time we met and studied this passage, we focused on God's power in it all. God made the heavens. He made the earth. He made everything that is in it. He upholds these things by his eternal counsel and his providence. He is able to take the valley of tears and turn it to our advantage. He's almighty. He is faithful. In the the Heidelberg Catechism, we, we looked at the providence of God saying, the almighty and ever everywhere present power of God whereby... As it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It's God's hand that gives us these things, and it is a God that is all-powerful, who is sovereign, who controls all things. We see in Scripture Passages that give that weight, such as Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. You see, that he tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. We see within the life of Joseph where he says to his brothers who... who left him for dead, and then sold him into slavery. You, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You're responsible for the evil that you did. You did something that was evil, but God, God meant it for good. God was going to use it to save many people, which is what God did exactly as he raised Joseph up to second in command in the Egyptian empire. His brothers meant it for evil. They did something that was evil, but God was sovereign over it all. all. It's critical that we understand this, that we understand that, that there are evil things that take place in this world. You watch the news, you see it. You see story after story of just incredible wickedness that takes place in this world. And yet there's great confidence in verses like Romans eight twenty eight, where it tells us we know, we know that all things work together for good. It doesn't mean that all things that happen are good. No, there's incredibly evil and wicked things that take place. But we serve a God who is all powerful, who can take all things and work them together for good, for good. Now, as we study this, it's important that we understand the entirety of this verse. Typically, 
You'll hear people comfort one another with, with words like, all things work together for good. We know, we know all things work together for good. And yet, the second portion of that, that verse is absolutely critical to our understanding of it. It's a promise that's given. It's a promise given by the very words, a covenant that God is making with us. But it is for a very specific group of people. To whom was the promise given? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. As we study the second portion of this verse this morning, it's critical that, that we see that it begins by giving a description of who it is that all things work together for good for. It's to those who love God. Begins by, by giving that description. To those who love God. Now as we, we see this, there's, there's a phrase that's being used, but it's being used synonymously with God's people. All things, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, meaning to believers, to God's people, to Christians. It's a phrase that's used to describe them. How many people are there in this, in this world who would say, I'm a Christian? Now, of course I'm a Christian. My parents are Christians, my grandparents are Christians. I'm part Methodist and part Baptist. Mom was Methodist, dad was Baptist. But in their minds, of course, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. This huge, huge majority of our country would say, absolutely, we're Christians. And yet, there isn't the fruit that comes from the life of the believer. It's not that in any way we earn our salvation based upon the fruit that we produce. It's that a Christian who has been made a new creation in Christ, his sin has been removed. Her sin's been removed. The Holy Spirit has been given to you. All of Christ's righteousness has been placed upon your account. There's conviction that comes. You've radically been transformed by a God who is able to regenerate us, to change us, who's conforming us into his image. It is that person in which fruit comes forth, just comes forth. There's fruit that comes out of our lives because we are believers. And so there's those that would say, of course I'm a, a Christian. And yet their lives are indistinguishable from the world. For us, as we look at this, it, it, it should challenge us we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And so the question would be asked is, do you love him? There's all different kinds of people that are within the Christian faith. There's those that practice baptism one way. There's those that, that use gifts in certain way. There's those that believe that there should be this kind of church government. Others believe that there should be another. There's those that come to 
to church in suits. Everything's proper, like myself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and there's others that come with shorts and flip-flops on. There's those that... That's like singing in a certain way. There's others that like singing in another way. Some like fast songs. Some like slow songs. Some like hymns only. Some prefer no musical instruments at all. There's all different kinds of people within the Christian faith, aren't there? And yet, something that would go across the spectrum of all believers is that they love him. They love him. It's a quality that all believers have. We love him. In fact, you go back in the Old Testament, and you see God laying these things out for us. As he's giving the, the Ten Commandments, he, he says to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So he refers to the unbelievers as those who hate me. They hate me. And then he gives the description of the believer, but show mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's those that hate me and there's those that love me. There's no in between. There's those that love him and there's those that hate him. And you may be here this morning saying, well, no, no, I I don't know that I hated him before I was a Christian. Or I see people who they wouldn't say that they're Christians, but, but I wouldn't say that they hate God. And yet, God does describe it that way. God says that they hate me. They hate holiness. They don't want to do things the way that I tell them to do things. They have no desire to worship me with their whole heart. They have no desire to obey my commandments. They do whatever's right in their own eyes. They would prefer a world in which there was no God. There was no accountability. They could do whatever they wanted to do. There was no repercussions. They hate me. And then he says, but then there's those who love me. And they showed their love by the keeping of the commandments. They love me and they keep the commandments. A change that's taken place within their hearts. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. You, you keep your covenant with those who love you. Description of God's people, they love him. You could take everybody else in the world, but there's those who are under the covenant. And they love him. Jesus says, 
In Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Love him. And as believers, we do, we love him. We desire to please him. We desire to obey his commandments. We delight in coming to him in worship. We want to take our lives and lay them down as living sacrifices before him. We want him to be well pleased with how we live, how we honor him, the things that come out of our mouths. We love him. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Eternity in heaven, entering into the joy of the Lord, inheriting God himself, being able to see him face to face. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for. For who? For those who love him. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. A crown that is given to who? To, to those who love him. They love him. We love him. Peter says, Whom having not seen, you love. Even though, church, you've never seen Christ face to face, nevertheless, you love him. The evidence of that love comes with hearts that just desire to praise him. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 63 where David's there and he says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you, my Soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, like in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I just love you like that. I seek you early in the morning, and I just long for you. I thirst for you. I love you. I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, and because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. I just worship you. There's a love that is there. A love that is there based on on who Christ is and what it is that he has accomplished for us. Think of the different hymns that have been written throughout the, the centuries. Hymns that have been written, hymn after hymn that has been written to, to bring God's people to a place of just singing praises to him. I saw that in the next set of songs, we're going to sing a song, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Written from a Canadian in the 1800s when he was 16 years old. A hymn that we all know and we all sing. 
from just a 16-year-old that got saved. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. A hymn that was written also in the 1800s was a hymn called More Love to Thee. More love to thee. Hymn goes, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee, more love to thee. Those are the words of Elizabeth Prentice, her husband was a Presbyterian minister. She she was throughout the majority of her life, although full of joy, throughout the majority of her life, she was an invalid. We're told at first she scarcely knew a moment of that was free of pain. Incredible pain. This particular hymn was written right after she experienced incredible sorrow. Two of her children died in a very short period of time. And in the the days following the death of her two children, she, she wrote in her diary, empty hands, a worn-out, exhausted body in unutterable longings, longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences. My body is worn out. It's exhausted. My hands are empty. I just want to be in heaven where there's not these sharp experiences that I am afflicted with. And then she writes a song like that. Right in the midst of it. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Once earthly joy I craved. Sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee, more love to thee. My circumstances are such that my hands are empty. My body is worn out and exhausted. I've just lost my two children, but Lord, more love to thee. I just want to love you more. I want you to to have it all. Let sorrow do its work, come grief or pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. She loved him. She's written a hymn in which probably all of us have sung. But a hymn that just says, I love you.
Another lady, Louisa Stead, lived from 1850 to 1917. Her husband and her family were out having a picnic by the ocean. The husband saw um, a little boy drowning, panicking, crying for help. So he ran out into the ocean, swam out there to him. His, his wife and his little daughter watched and, and as they watched their dad go out there trying to save this little boy, they watched the dad and the little boy drown. Um, and in the days following, just incredible, sorrowful days, she wrote this hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" and to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise and to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood and in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me, will be with me to the end. And then her and her little daughter left for 25 years of missionary work in Africa. And they just left. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. You look and, and it's just, it's, it's praise. These aren't love songs that are coming from a mentality of, like we see so many Songs today of the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of song, you know? I can't stand them. I mean, it's, it, there, there's weight to this. There's weight coming from the, the, the tears of a wife that has lost her husband and watched him drown. There's weight to a song of, of a, coming from a mom who's lost her two kids. There's weight to songs where you look and and circumstances aren't great, and yet, nevertheless, it's, I will praise you. I will love you, regardless of my circumstances. I trust in your promises. Love that is so sweet. The list could go on and on. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford after he watched his four daughters die. He didn't watch it, but his wife and his daughters left for England. He had lost everything in the Chicago fire. His son had died. He loses his daughters as the ship 
goes down in 12 minutes. His wife is miraculously saved. He's going across the Atlantic to meet up with his grieving wife and is there that he was moved to pen the, the hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My favorite stanza in that is, my sin, oh my, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It it is possible for the believer to go through incredibly difficult circumstances, but to have a foundation that is so rock solid that says, and we know, That all things work together for good to those who love him. To those who are the called according to his purpose. It anchors us to a place where we may in this life say, I don't know how this could ever work together for good. I don't think that I'll ever be able to see how this could work together for good. But I know it will. Because I know whom I serve. And I know the God that I believe in. I know the God that I love. And he gives me promises like this that he will work all things together for my good. And when I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when I had first begun. We'll be praising him, looking and saying, he has molded us into his image or he has caused us to write a hymn that would bless millions upon millions of people because of the anguish of my soul and the worst of my time. I trust him. I love him. The the 16-year-old wrote my Jesus, I love thee, and just sent it to his aunt in L.A. From Canada, just mailed this little poem to his aunt, and it's she that published it. He died at age 27. He never knew that it would be used in such ways. But just trusting him. Looking at it and saying, I may not understand, but he tells me that I can know that all things will work together for good to those who love him. Now you may be here this morning and say, I think I love him. I mean, you, it tells me that if I love him, I ought to obey his commandments. It, it tells me that if I love him, that... My heart should be singing praises to him, and I do that. We see in in 1 John where it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he does not love his brother. whom For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him. He that loves God must, must love his brother also. And so you may be here this morning and saying, I try to obey his commandments, but I fail miserably. I try to sing praises to him with all my heart, but sometimes my mind just wanders or it's just not coming from my heart at all. 
Or, I feel like I love my brothers. I feel like I love those who are here in this fellowship. Christians that God has placed around me, but sometimes I fight it. Sometimes I don't. I know I need to grow in my love for people. And so there could be times in our lives where we look and say, I, I love him. I think, you know. The verse goes on and says, to, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. It takes it out of, do I love him enough to, are you the called? Are you the called? It takes it from the possibility of us becoming man-centered, looking at it and saying, I think I love him enough, I, I, I think I do, to where it's, no, I'm the called according to his purpose. It's not based upon whether I'm, I'm loving enough today. But it's based upon God who called me according to his purposes. And we see that in scripture all the way through that he's called us. You see in, the, in, in just the book of Romans alone where he begins by saying, in reference to the church, you also who are the called of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.6. Romans 1.7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. You're the called, synonymous with believers. Romans 8.30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. The called are a part of those who have been predestined. And those who have been called are those who have been justified. And those who are justified are those who are sure to be glorified. It's the called. It's Christians. In Romans 9.10, it says, not only this, but when Rebekah had also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It's not based upon him who wills. It's not based upon how you run. It's not based upon your own abilities. It's based upon God's purpose according to election. It's based upon not of works, but of him who calls. A calling that's placed upon us as believers. That moment when God quickens us as the Holy Spirit draws us unto himself. He regenerates us by the calling of the Holy Spirit in our life and we become believers. And so here when it says, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, it's to believers who have been called even from the foundation of the world in which God has called you. Not according to works, but according to a call. Not based on how well you run, but based upon the purpose of him who calls. And it goes all to God's sovereignty in it all, to where we look at it and we say, and we, I know. I can know that all things work together for good for me because I love him, but I'm the called. According to his purpose, 
He caused me, who was dead in sins and trespasses, to be made alive to where I was able to see that I was a sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. And all of my hope is in Christ upon the cross. My salvation is not based upon what I can do or how well I can live. My works, it's based upon the fact that Jesus Christ, the creator of this universe, became a man lived a perfectly righteous life, died on the cross, and he's given me all of his righteousness as he's taken all of my sin upon himself. And my only hope in this life is that my sin was placed upon him and his righteousness was placed upon me. And he is my savior and he died and he rose again on the third day. And he has called me to salvation. The only way that you could ever come to a place of believing that is if you were called. Romans 3 tells us there is none that seek after him. Now you may be here saying, well, I I believe the facts. I I believe that he died and I believe that he rose again from the third day. I believe that he was my Messiah. But there is also a, a belief that would be the The same kind of belief James talks about where he says even the demons believe and they tremble. There's an acknowledgement of these things, and yet there's no desire to worship him. There's no clinging to him. There's no loving him. There's no thoughts that go through your mind like the psalmist saying, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you like in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That doesn't happen to the unregenerate heart. You don't long for him. You don't love him. And so... As we look at this, the promise is given to believers, to those who are the called, to those who say, all of my hope is in Christ, and I sin and I fail miserably, but I love him. I I love him. I don't love him perfectly. I'm growing in my love for him. Like, I'm like the lady writing the hymn and just saying, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. There, hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. I just, I want to love you more, but I love you. I just, I want to love you more. I want to love you so much, I have a desire to obey your commandments. The promise is given to believers. And we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know it, don't we? We know it. And then there's times where the doubt comes. Oh, God, give us the ability to trust in the promises of God. But this is for believers. This is not a promise that is given to the unbeliever. The person who is still dead in their sins, the person who has no robes of righteousness that have been given to them by Christ, the person who is going in a direction of spending eternity in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth to eternity in hell, nothing works together for good for them. 
The person who spends eternity in hell, there's nothing, there's nothing that works together for good for them. This promise is not given to them. It is only given to believers. It's only given to believers. To those who, who say, I can't do it on my own. If I try to do it on my own, I will fail every time. I'll become miserable. I'll be depressed. I'll have a weight that's upon me that is so intense that I can't bear it. All things do not work together for good for those that are in that place. But to the one who says, take it. Take all of my sin. Take all of my guilt. Take all of my life. Take it all. It all is to be placed upon Christ and give me your righteousness and give me your life because I need to be washed of all of my sins. It is us alone who have hope in this life. It's us alone who can know that all things work together for good. This is not something where the intent behind the preaching this morning is to say, you know, rah, rah, us Christians, let's go. We're the only ones that have things good. We're the only ones that know that everything works together for good. This is something where it's, thus saith the Lord. This is the very words of God. The Holy Spirit has inspired them perfectly to say, brothers and sisters, we know. When two children have passed or you've watched your husband drown or your daughters have gone down with a ship or disease has come or job is gone, we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his eternal purposes, to his calling in which he has called us. And we know it to be the case. And that is a promise that has pylons driven to the heart of the earth that you can stand on and it will not move. And you can know it. For us, that is good, good news, isn't it? And it is for the believer. What a joy it is to think that out of every person here, you can walk out of the doors of the church saying, and I know that all things will work together for my good. Because today could be the day of salvation for everyone. Every one of us here can make our calling and make our election sure this morning. Every one of us could be here in this place and say, all my hope has to be in him for the remission of sins and for righteousness. And it could be on this day that at Reverence Bible Church, there's not one soul that walks out the doors of this church without knowing that all things will work together for good. And that is our prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, promises that are given, that are powerful. We don't make these things up. They are given to us. They're given to us by the power of your Holy Spirit to write these things in such a perfect way to affect lives, to change us, to show us that maybe it is that we've never loved you,
Maybe the evidence of not desiring to obey your commandments or sing praises to you or the hatred that's in our heart towards a brother. Maybe it's, it's that that shows us that we're not saved, that we need to repent and to believe, come to salvation today, or, or maybe it is today that we look at these things and we say, I know it, I know, I know, because I love him, because I believe in him. My hope is in him. I am the called. He called me. According to his purposes, he called me, and I have faith in him. And I know that all things will work together for good for me. By the power of Almighty God, who does whatsoever he wills to do, I have such great confidence in him. May that be every one of us this morning. Oh, please, Lord, by your grace, may that be every one of us this morning. Casting all of our cares upon you. Having you take the load that we have held upon our shoulders off of us. And just you taking it and giving us life and that abundantly. Please, Lord, do that in the hearts of everybody here this morning. And may your people, called by your name, joyfully respond with worship, even as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.